Hey everybody, this is uh, Gad Saad. I've got a real superhero with me today, or at least one who plays that on t television. I've got Superman, Dean Kane. How are you doing, sir? I'm fantastic. I'm honored to be here. I'm a big fan, and uh, I actually bought your book, The Parasitic Mind. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, because it's the Kindle version. That's all I can get. Oh, why is that? You mean, it, they, hopefully they no sold out. Yeah, there's, so there's no, I can't get another book. I, I can only get the Kindle version for now, oh. but I don't usually read on a Kindle, so I'm going to read it on my computer. Oh, wonderful. Uh, before we, we got on when we were speaking offline, I said, hey, let's let's just address each other in a very informal way, because... I had noticed that uh, your level of etiquette and politeness is so endearing. It comes from an, an, another era. And I think your explanation was you used to be, of course, a football player and a, a police officer now. And so you're used to sort of addressing people with that kind of respect. But I thought that all police officers were Nazis. So I'm kind of confused. <laughs> yeah, there's a little bit of a disconnect there. Uh, listen, in any group of people, you're going to find some folks that are, you, you know, it's, it's a cliche to say bad apples. But um, in any football team, in any group of people, there'd be some people who act a little bit differently. But by and large, all of the officers that I know are there to protect and serve. They're fantastic people. And the way we've gotten um, and demonized in, in the media and, and other places, police officers, and the way people are being taught to disrespect them and not comply and that they're Nazis and all of these things is terrible. Now, I've seen some horrible instances, even in Canada, where police officers had to come in and do things that I, as, a, as an officer myself, I would have a really difficult time performing that task. And uh, I would have a real problem doing that, and I would feel horrible doing so. And I would try to explain that to the people if I was having to enforce something that I felt was unconstitutional or wrong. Uh, fortunately, we have a different set of standards here in the United States regarding um, privacy and constitutionality of, of rights and things of that nature. So, But I, 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 I hate to see what's going on these days with the police officers. It's why I joined up. It's why I wear the uniform and stand um, with my brothers and sisters in blue. I, you, without security, without that, 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 that idea that you know your family is going to be safe, there's someone to call. You can't call Superman. He's not going to show up. You can call a police officer, and uh, they will show up. And by and large, they're fantastic. When did you uh, sign up? I mean, it's pretty recently, right? It's not something that you did when you were 22 years old, right? Uh, it's probably been, um, I probably have been an officer now for three or four years, four years. And what does uh, it mean to be a reserve officer? That means it, it, they, they only call you if they're short on numbers or how, what does that mean exactly? It means they have to do a certain number of year uh, of hours per year at the department, a certain amount of training and certain amount of uh, school work, school work and text work and go through. There's always updates to training and things of that nature. So I have to go through all of that stuff and then I do my hours uh, with my chief and, and, and with my other reserve officers, um, whether it's training or uh, you know, patrol or or you know, outreach, whatever it happens to be. And I'm I'm in two different departments. I'm also a sheriff's deputy in in Frederick County, Virginia. And so I'll be back and forth to both departments and 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 sort of spreading the good word, if you will. Wow. What what was? I mean, obviously, it's a it's a calling for you. It's something that compels you to do this. You don't need to do this at you know, I guess you're in your fifties, if you don't mind me saying, a bit younger, <laughs> a bit younger than me. So obviously, it's something very. Uh, this you know within you that caused you to do it uh what, what is it walk us through why you chose to do this at this stage in your life well I, honestly it's um i have a great respect for our military and our men and women in, in uniform and and uh those who fight for those who cannot fight protect the rights of those who who, who can't do it um there's a picture a photo of a, of a gentleman behind me is, is chris kyle he was a navy sniper 
they made the film American Sniper over about him. And uh, Chris was a very good friend of mine and uh, someone who I had tremendous respect for. And one day we were we were sitting around and he was talking to a police officer and he said, you know what? In, in, in so many ways, your job as a police officer is much more difficult than my job as a Navy SEAL. I know I'm going to a war and I'm fighting bad guys. Every single stop when you pull someone over, you don't know what you're getting into. You have no idea. You get a domestic call. You don't know what you're walking into. And they're walking into the most dangerous places all the time. So to listen to Chris talk to my friend Tom that way, um, it, it really made me think. You know, there's more that I can be doing myself. Uh, and, and, and then it was not too long after that that sort of this anti-police rhetoric started. And I decided that I wanted to throw my lot in with the men and women in blue and um, explain it was a very unpopular choice. Um, but I thought it was the right thing to do. You, you mean within your family it was unpopular? It was unpopular in my profession, um, in Hollywood, to go and support, you know, the blue and that sense, yeah. even though, the, you know, the biggest, the biggest, you know, blockbuster films, and they're always, they're always police officers, yeah. always people with, with weapons and doing the right thing, and, and in real life people aren't doing that. Well, police officers are every single day. So within my family also I met with um, pretty strong resistance because my family wants me to be safe. Yeah. They don't like me out there. They also don't want me to be a target if I'm out there expressing a point of view that makes a lot of people not like me or want to target me. And uh, so so my my mother in particular wanted me to not do that. And she doesn't like when I go to do um, my time. Sometimes I don't tell her. I just tell her I'm traveling, going to do this, and then I come back. But she uh, it makes my mother nervous because – you know, police officers are, are in harm's way every single day. Although she respects the heck out of what I'm doing, as do all the members of my family, they also, you know, feel a bit of trepidation in that I would be in a bad situation and, and, and possibly be injured or killed, like every police officer every single day. You know, I got to tell you, uh, I, you know, I received, you know, many letters from all sorts of people from around the world. And the ones, I mean, they all bring me great pleasure because it's so nice i mean as as you would when someone loves your work uh every single one brings me great pleasure and sense of gratitude and so on but some of the ones that i appreciate the most are those that come from military folks from police officers from corrections officers because that to me there, there's a realness there right like i'm not my message is not resonating with seven, you know, highfalutin Ivy League. I'm, I'm a fellow Ivy Leaguer. I, I, I got my MS and PhD at Cornell. Uh, and I was going to joke with you. Of course, you went to Princeton because you couldn't get into Cornell. It makes perfect sense. <laughs> By the way, when 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 uh, Cornell used to play Princeton in hockey, the, the chance of uh, Cornell to taunt the Princeton players was Princeton's in New Jersey. Princeton's... <laughs> well, they got a, got a point. That's that right. Ithaca. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyways, uh, you know, I love those folks that write to me because to me, it suggests that I'm doing something right. If 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 only, uh, you know, uh, history professors at Stanford are writing to me to say how uh, how much they appreciate my work, then I'm not doing a good job. But if a corrections officer in Pennsylvania writes to me and says, I'm consuming all your stuff. I bought this book. I, I'm like, OK, I think I'm on the right track here. So. Hats off to you for joining the force. Well, hats off to you to reaching to for reaching your everyday people. I mean, obviously, you could speak in a way, and I've read some of your work. It takes me a minute sometimes to read it over again because it's you're you're very intelligent and you're you you speak in a way that that your sentences are thick sometimes, and you have to 
go through them a couple times to really understand. And the fact that you can do that and still make your point and your corrections officer in Pennsylvania is, is reading that and understanding it and, and, and you, the regular person can understand you, I think that's a credit to you. I'm a big fan of, uh, as a writer, of Ernest, Ernest Hemingway. Sure. I love Ernest Hemingway, his writing. I think it's fantastic. It's brilliant. F. Scott Fitzgerald went to Princeton. And there's so many people who love F. Scott Fitzgerald's writing. I can't read F. Scott yeah. Fitzgerald because he walks into a room and describes the room for 17 pages. I don't care. <laughs> Try to read I'm, French novels of the turn of the 20th century. They'll spend 16 pages just discussing the dew on the grass. <laughs> See, I can't do that. I want, I want Ernest Hemingway, and I, I, I like his style. Yeah. You know, he walks in and goes, the guy at the bar was fat. Okay. Boom. <laughs> but, but by the way, I think just to kind of draw a segue to politics, I've argued that one of the reasons why our you know, much more intelligent, superior overlords in Hollywood and academia and in journalism, the reason why they had such a visceral disdain for Donald Trump, and you'll read this when you get to, to reading The Parasitic Mind, is because of what I call an aesthetic injury, right? So they, Donald Trump speaks in a way that then invalidates their existence because, you know, he is gauche, he is brash, he is obnoxious. He, he doesn't speak with the, with the beautiful vernacular, with the beautiful elocution. So if that guy can ascend to the highest office, then what does it say about all of the ego stroking that I've put behind in my wall with all the diplomas? Therefore, I must invalidate him so I can validate myself. What do you think? I think you're brilliant and you're 100% <laughs> correct. It's just, it's completely true. That, unfortunately, under some of our past administration as well, um, administrations, the same thing has happened within the military. There are people who are ascending to higher ranks in the military who aren't warfighters. Yeah. Give me a good warfighter in my, in my foxhole any day. You know, give me Chris Kyle yeah. any day over someone who can, who, who can give a great speech. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and that's the problem is that too many of our military officers have become politicians in a sense. And that's unfortunate too, because there's a place, you know, there, it's, it's, it's the Mike Tyson thing, you know, Mike Tyson thing. It's like everybody can have a plan and everything can be wonderful till you get punched in the face <laughs> and then everything's out the window. And that's, that is, that's akin to life. I mean, it's what happens. I'm a filmmaker. I'm about to start a movie next Wednesday. We start principal photography for the first day, June 8th, we start. And, and there's a million things that are going to go wrong. And I don't need someone to explain to me, you know, all the different possible reasons it could go wrong. I want someone to go, it's, this is jacked up. This isn't fixed. we got to get here and make this happen. I get that. And Donald Trump did that. And he speaks. I spent a lot of time with uh, former President Trump. I, I Well, a, re a relative amount of time. But I spent time with him before he was president. I was spent time in the Oval Office with him. And in the Oval Office, he was as candid as he ever was. Um, I've judged Miss Universe contest or Miss Miss World, Miss Universe, I don't know which one it was, uh, for him in the past and things of that nature. He's a very candid individual. He is gruff. He is, you know, you're building in New York. There's some bad words that come out when you're building in New York and you're doing these things and dealing with folks. And, and he was that way as a politician and it was gruff, but he was very, very effective in my opinion. Do you think that he, I mean, will run again in 2024 or do you think it's over? I, I don't know. I, it, it's impossible to to bet against him in a way. Like I I saw his I saw his campaign for president um, absolutely unfold and, and disintegrate six times as far as I was concerned. Yeah. He made this comment. I'm like, okay, well that's going to be it. That's and then somehow he survived it. He says this something else. Like, oh gosh, that's okay. He's done. He's done. Yeah. Survived it again. 
So I, I don't know. I I'm a I get in these arguments on Twitter and elsewhere um, over over his policies. I I, I want to argue policy, and everybody just tells me what a terrible guy Donald Trump is. And I go, but what but what about his policies? What about, it's the policies that matter, not whether he gives a great speech or reads the teleprompter very well or doesn't read the teleprompter very well, as our current commander in chief uh, doesn't do very well. You know, it's 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 not about that. Um, I love the way that Ronald Reagan was the great communicator. Sure. Ronald Reagan, there's a picture of me right here with Ronald Reagan. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Incredible. I was able to play Superman at the time, and, and I heard that they said, you know, there's a call. Ronald Reagan wants to meet with you. I was like, what? Wow. He was no longer president at the time, and so I met with him for an hour and a half. Unbelievable. For an hour and a half, and we talked about all sorts of things, and uh, he wrote a wonderful inscription on the bottom of my uh, photo. It says, it says, to Dean, I've always wondered, I know, I don't have to look at it, I know what it says. To Dean, I've always wondered, what, what do you do when there isn't a phone booth? Warmly, Ronald Reagan. <laughs> and that's oh. right there in a place of honor for me. Uh, incredible. So here, he was a great communicator. So here's what I, I, I haven't met any of these uh, gentlemen that you just mentioned, but my instinct is that when you sit with someone like Ronald Reagan or George Bush, the junior, the, the son, they seem like cool guys that you want to hang out with. They exude that. Yeah. I think in the case Obama, forget it. It's it's all fake stuff, uh, right? He 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 truly is a narcissist in that he needs to be the center of attention. I feel as though Trump, in a in a different manifestation of narcissism, also has to be the top dog. He's not I going to. That. Is that okay? So that's it. So in a sense, when I often look at these. Uh, either presidents or presidential candidates, I try to instinctively look at whether I would want to invite them over for dinner. And if my sense is they would be cool to hang out with, then I like them. Uh, and, and I guess what you're saying about Ronald Reagan is that he was a swell of a guy. In a heartbeat. I wish he would come have dinner with me right now. Wow. Uh, amazing, amazing man. The warmest individual. So funny. I mean, the fact that he reached out, he was like, oh, who is this Superman kid? I like him. Uh, Princeton kid. Let me bring him in here. But see, that's no pretense, right? That's see one of the things that when you and I connected, so I, you know, either someone reaches out to me or I reach out to them, I can also pick up their diva quotient score, right? Like, (laughs) right? And and I'm, I mean, I I just met you, but in the very little that we've interacted, you know, offline and so on, there is a realness about you. There's there's an authenticity. You don't you don't think you're you know. And I think I'd like to think that I'm the same way. That's what allows me to speak with someone on Twitter who has two followers. Some folks will answer and say, you know, why are you wasting your time on this person with two followers? Well, because I don't modulate my interactions as a function of how important you are. I'm, I'm real to a fault, right? So I will use uh, humor where someone will criticize me. Well, you know, a fancy professor like you should not be using sarcasm or acting like a book. No, 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 no. That's, that's called being multifaceted, right? I can go to Stanford and give a talk, as you said earlier, that's very fancy and scientific, or I can sh- shoot the blank. Shoot, uh, the, shoot the stuff. Shoot the stuff with the <laughs> corrections officer. I'm not above you. I'm part of you. And so, uh, and, and I certainly, I think I picked that up in you. There's no doubt for, for me. I mean, I, I am as comfortable in an Ivy League setting as I am sitting uh, across having a beer with somebody in a pub. And whether it's, or I'm in blue wearing the uniform. I, I mean, I purposely, you know, wear the uniform alongside everybody else. I don't, there's no S on my shoulder when I do it. <laughs> um, you know, they make fun of it, but I don't need to be that guy. 
I don't need to have all the attention on me. I'm happy to be there and be part of – I'm a teammate. As a football player, you learn to be a teammate. And I can't do anything as a football player if the other 10 guys on my squad and the other 11 guys on the offense, because I'm a defensive player – I was a defensive player. Still, I still sort of identify that way. Um, <laughs> you were uh, a safety, I, right? Yes, I was a safety. Yeah, yes, sir. Wow. I, it was a lot of fun. I loved that. That was a position there. You know, when you are like, I look at football players, and I like even I met a kid the other day. I looked at him and I said, "You're a corner." And he's 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 right on the edge of going to the NFL. He's like, "Yep." And I already liked him because I already knew I, I understood him as a what, what he, we play the same position basically. I got him. We could we we just were right here. We don't like receivers. That's great, you know. And that's just the way it is. And you you understand each other right away. And as a safety, um, it's a it's a perfect position for me. Well, I think what I like about that position, forgive me for interrupting you, is that it seem, and it actually caters to something that I used to be a competitive soccer player and I used to play the playmaker role, which allowed me to kind of roam around looking for free spaces. And in a sense, a safety, because you don't have as much, uh, you know, one-on-one -on -one marking, you are playing that roaming role, correct? Yeah, you're definitely a soccer player when you say one-on-one -on -one marking. We say covering. <laughs> Ah, okay. <laughs> we don't mark someone. We cover them. I see. Yeah, okay. so it's a general area, and, and you're not involved in man-to-man -man coverage all the time, which I you know, I wasn't the fastest person out there. I wasn't the fastest player. But you give me the fastest guy, and I'll be three steps ahead of him because I know flow, and I know the game, and I pay attention. I'm a student of the game, and sometimes you'll cheat a little early, and sometimes you look like you're cheating a little early, and you're actually going the other way. So it's a mind game, and it's there's so much to it. But that's that that freedom to be able to move around a little and do much, be a playmaker, is what a safety is, in my opinion. And that's why you know you 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 quote the honey badger all the time. Yeah. You, you you refer to honey badger mentality. There's a player who's playing right now, Teron Matthew, who's called the honey badger. And oh, is that right? Okay. That way. Yes, and he is amazing, and he's a safety. Ah, there you go. Well, here's so let's start. I mean. Uh, maybe we could later mention, you know, that you you were going to play in the NFL. Then you had a devastating uh, injury. Do you, do you want to talk about that? Because then I'd like to talk about some of our favorite football players before we return to wokeness in in Hollywood. Uh, <laughs> you want to tell the, quickly the story of uh, what happened to you that uh, didn't lead you to greatness in the NFL? Well, I got, I got signed to the Buffalo Bills. It was a wonderful place for me to play. I was an uh, undrafted free agent out of Princeton. I was an All-American football player. I had a lot of interceptions, set some NCAA records, so I got some some notoriety, which you need coming out of Princeton as a as a as a defensive back to get a chance at the NFL. And I got a shot because Jason Garrett, who was the head coach of the Cowboys, Dallas Cowboys up until last season for like 9 years, he played forever in the NFL. His father was a scout and would, was at all our games. Jason was my teammate as was his brother John and his brother Judd, and they all went to the NFL as well. So it was able, it was, that's what allowed me to get a look in the NFL. Buffalo was the perfect system for me. Um, they had just, I was a rookie with Thurman Thomas, who's in the Hall of Fame now. Oh, of course. That, that year, so I came in with him. Bruce Smith, Cornelius Bennett, Jim, uh, Jim Kelly, uh, Andre Reed, these unbelievable players wow. all there. And I was able to be there for a very short time, unfortunately. Um, I got to camp. I felt very comfortable in the system. I was, you know, on the bottom of the depth chart, of course, and I felt like I was moving my way up. And I was really enjoying the NFL experience more than college football. Like the way it felt like it was created the way I wanted things to run. This is how you're supposed to do it. Yes, this is it. Enough rest. Yes, we should have these things. This is great. So I was really excited about it. And I loved the way their defenses were set up. It was really to my strengths. 
And uh, I had a lot to learn, obviously, but I felt really comfortable. I had a knee injury. It was nagging. They finally said you have to have surgery. I, I said, can I just wait till after the Houston game, first preseason game? Because I thought I would earn my spot by playing in the, in the Houston game. But they didn't want me to get out there and get injured worse and have to pay me a bunch of money. Not that it was a much, much money, but it's a business decision. Sure. So I had to have surgery. I had it back in Los Angeles. They said that's the end of it. You, they went inside and saw a big defect in the. So I lost my lateral meniscus on the on my right knee. It's completely gone. They removed that completely, and there was a big defect on the bone. So I had a bone on bone situation, um, and they said you need to retire if you want to play basketball with your son when you're 40. You need to retire and think of something else to do. Wow. I was 22. You know, it's uh, I didn't I didn't make it to the NFL, but I was a top. Uh, if I may put it that way, a soccer player who certainly was looking at going uh, pro. And I had at 17 in the Eastern Canadian Championships, we were Quebec champions. Uh, you know, we have provinces, you have states. So we were the provincial champions. And then we were going to the Canadian Championship. And, and I had a, a guy come from behind and do what's called a scissors tackle in soccer. A scissors tackle is where, you know, one leg goes here, the other one goes there. And that's usually a straight red card precisely because it's so dangerous. And that ended it for me. And uh, and I guess maybe we can talk about this now. I had this question for later, but uh, so for me, if you asked me what is my greatest regret in life, is that I wasn't able to instantiate, you know, the full potential of my soccer career. I always knew that I wanted to be a soccer player and a professor from a very young age. So I got to be a professor, but I didn't get to, uh, you know, see out my soccer career. And every time that the World Cup comes around and so on, it's always, you know, what if, what could have happened? And, you know, I was heading with the national team and so on. Uh, so in your case, if I were to ask you so far, what is your greatest regret? Would it be that NFL injury or would there be something else that would be nagging at the back of your mind? No, I would say it's certainly the injury. I mean... I fortunately for me, and, and I'm sure it's the same for you, is I knew that I had the talent to be there. Yeah. Like I don't have to ask, I don't have the nagging question, could I have ever made it? Because I was able to be there and go, yes, I feel like I belong here. Uh, and so I would have liked to have played for a couple of seasons. I really would have enjoyed that. Of course, we went, we lost the AFC Championship, my rookie game, but then the next four years went to the Super Bowl every year. Right. So if I played five years, I would have seen five Super Bowls. Oh, my God. So this is like so ninety to ninety four, right? Yes, sir. It was it was it was eighty nine, the eighty nine season to ninety whatever that would be, ninety three, ninety two, ninety three, and that's when I started playing Superman. So I was just like, hmm. but I wish I would have had the chance to get out there and play for a little while. Um, perhaps just I, it wouldn't have had to have been a for fifteen years or anything crazy, no Tom Brady sort of stuff. But if I had been able to play for a few games, a couple of seasons, that would have been amazing for me i would have loved that so i i do wish that i had had that opportunity however i i don't run through my life with many regrets oh that's you know? you're lucky yes I, I i there's very little that i regret there's things that I, maybe i should have done differently but i've learned from some of those mistakes i've made uh as a young brash youth uh but but i really i really was i've been very very blessed and very fortunate in in the way my life has gone so i'm i'm i try to stay as humble as i can because I know that, you know, even if I made it to the NFL, maybe maybe I would have dropped my head in one tackle and end up paralyzed like like it happens on occasion. Or maybe I'd have much more injuries now than I do. I've had six surgeries, not all because of football, but all because of some sort of athletic injury, most of them from football. <laughs> wow. 
but that but that would be the biggest sort of regret I had. But in, in that sense, it's not even a re- regret. It's just a I wish it had gone a little bit further. It, yeah, I can hear you. Uh, do you mind if we do a bit more football before we come back to some more? I've been talk football for six hours. Ah, let's okay. Let's keep We're going. Good. So listen to this story, Dean. So I, I, I was born in Lebanon, grew up there till the age of 11, then came to Canada. And for whatever reason, I, I took to football, you know, uh, I mean, football, meaning soccer was part I, of I know. Right, right. You know how it is. But then football, American football, I took to it within two seconds, became incredibly passionate about it. And the first team that I supported and the first non-soccer player sort of sports hero that I had, you ready? Do you want me to give you any hints so that you can guess? It's a quarterback in the 70s. No, no, before. Before. Quarterback in the 70s. Who? Warren Moon. Earlier. I'm old. I'm old. 1970s. In the 70s? Yes, I'm 11. 1970s. Well, 1970, I was four. We're not that far apart. Um, Wow. No, no, not 1970. I said 1970s. So I'll give you a hint. Like 76, 77, 78. Who was the big team? There was Pittsburgh. Roger Who was the Staubach. other one? Say it. Roger Staubach. Yes. Dallas Cowboys. Yes. Roger Staubach was my guy. You know, He's I amazing. just I just loved them. Roger the Dodger. I used to love the Dallas Cowboys. You know, Preston Pearson and the, the rest of the gang. And actually, uh, Preston Pearson was was that was that the the the, the safety or the, there were there were two Pearsons. One was the safety. Drew one Pearson was, was the wide receiver. Drew Preston Pearson, Pearson was, was a running back. Exactly. Oh, I I remember all this so well. Unbelievable. So so then move. Great teams. Phenomenal team. Now then we move to I consider it to be the greatest. And you you're a much bigger expert than me, so you'll correct me if I'm wrong. Although some of it is just personal preferences. The greatest running back of all time is Barry Sanders. I still today put show put all the highlights reels for my young son just to show him what the things that he can do that you just go, how is that possible? Super pissed that he retired early. What, what are, what is your, where do you put him in the ranking of all time greats? Forgetting about the fact that he's not number one in terms of overall yardage, but in terms of style and so on. I put him number one. I think Barry Sanders was, cause I'm looking who I would hate to tackle. Like Eric Dickerson was amazing. Incredible. He ran very up and down and yeah. I feel like I could, I can get a tackle. I get a hit on him. Get a tackle. You can get a good shot at him. Barry Sanders. There's some players you can't. I don't. Doesn't matter. You just you line it up. You're flying in there. You go in to get this big hit. And even when you hit him, it just you don't really get him. You just sort of can't get him. And it's these little things they can do with their body. And what Barry Sanders was able to do, his quickness and his shiftiness, he would have been the hardest back ever for me to tackle. Oh, I love him. I love Tony Dorsett, of course. I love Marcus Allen. Uh, I loved uh, the sweetness himself. Um, oh, uh, Peyton. Walter Peyton. But uh, but I have to give number one to Barry Sanders. Oh, that's fantastic. You know, it's there was a there was a safety. I don't remember if it was John Lynch from Denver. One of the teams who said... John Lynch, Denver. Yeah. When we play uh, Detroit, I, I guess, Detroit. where... Okay. My only goal is to make sure that I don't make it into the highlight reels for that evening. <laughs> and I thought that was such a fantastic quote because that's exactly it, right? There's 11 guys on the other team. That's what I always tell my wife. I tell her there's something magical, mystical about sports competition because all the competitors, all the war, they're all fast. They're all strong. They're all great. They're all trained. They could all line up to hit you. And yet somehow you're just better than them. 
And there's some, it's what you said about trying to hit Barry Sanders. You know how to play, yet he's going to beat you. I love that. Yes. There's something it's transcendental a, about that. It's a Michael Jordan sort of situation. It's a Michael there's Jordan. Stuff. Everybody's out there, but then there's one guy who is head and shoulders above, and you just, or Magic Johnson. How, how does that happen? And it's the very rare athlete that can do that. And there is something magical about it. The movie I'm about to do, you, you, you may like the film I'm about to do, because it's, um, uh, I wrote it, I'm producing it, directing it, starring in it. Uh, it's about a football coach, an American football coach, who gets in trouble for saying the wrong thing about female, he had a female kicker come in and try to kick an extra point, and she missed it, and then he makes fun of her, and he gets he gets um, sent to, he gets suspended for the season, and he has to do community service and go to a sensitivity seminar, which he doesn't like. <laughs> and the community service he has to do is go coach a girls, a 12-year-old girls soccer team, and he hates soccer. And it's not football. He doesn't oh call it football. My he God. Calls it soccer. But then, of course, he grows to really love the girls. And they're the oddball team. It's kind of like the Mighty Ducks. And that's what I was going to say. Okay. So, wow. So, so that's, you're starting to shoot next week. Next, next Wednesday. Wednesday, June 8th, we start principal photography. We've already shot one day during a football game, but I'm not going to count that as principal yet. I'm guessing if there is a role for an exceptionally good-looking 50-something-year-old Super old soccer player, you're looking at towards Canada for casting. Uh, there's a certain guy. He was born in Lebanon, so I don't know <laughs> if I can get him there or not. He's a he's a he's a he's one of these guys, really smart. So I don't know if I can pull him in for that. But if I can, I would have him there. I would. It would be brilliant. What oh. an Easter egg in that movie. Oh my goodness! <laughs> Last thing on football. Uh, my favorite current player tries. Not not tries, but is is sort of heading towards Barry Sanders, but nowhere near Alvin Kamara. Unbelievable. He is an athlete unlike many that you'll ever see. And then he works really, really hard in the offseason, too. The drills and the balance drills he does. He also helped me win two of my fantasy league football teams games last year because he scored six touchdowns in one I know. of the like, late games. And and it just I won everything. It was great. It's the uh, mechanics. He's amazing. You're going to get this. Obviously, you you are about to be a pro football player, so I don't need to explain this to you. But there is something in the mechanics of his movement, right? I mean, I've been watching football for 40-some years. I've seen a million running backs. I watch him. It's orgasmic. Just the way he shimmies, the way he does. A combination of the finesse with the power. He's about as close as Barry Sanders without being nearly as good as Barry Sanders as I've seen. You Have you seen any of his workout stuff? I have not. That's what you might want to see some of that stuff because he does some incredible balance stuff, things you can't even think about. And it's that stuff that translates to his game. He's got incredible people that he works with. He works incredibly hard in the offseason. And he looks like if you ever see him, if you saw him like as a human being, just looked at him with his with where you can see his physique. Forget the statue of David. I mean, it's the guy the man is ridiculous. He's just it's the it's as though you carved him out of granite. Like, show me the perfect human. There it is. You know, I can see it without having seen him without his clothes off. Just the way he fills out his thing, he's so proportionate, right? He's his, the legs are are perfect to the size of the toy. You know, and it's funny because I I went through a long, uh, big weight loss journey recently, uh, and and Congrats. I know that you, thank you, and I know that you you have too. I think I was reading that you you had been. Uh, pre-diabetic and you had to lose a lot of weight and so and, and I'm, I'm much shorter than you and so I probably weighed as much as you did with much many fewer inches so it wasn't a good thing so I really had to kind of nip this in the bud 
And and as I was going down my weight, I've lost now just in the last, since January 40 pounds, but in total Ooh. about 65 pounds, 70 Ooh. pounds almost, yeah. And and as I was going down, my marker was I'm now 10 pounds more than Alvin Kamara. I'm, I'm I now weigh as much. So it's like you know how there is before Christ and after Christ when you so there's you know where am I in the Alvin Kamara? And so I was walking with my son a few days ago, and I said I can't believe it. I'm incredibly thinner now than Alvin Kamara. I feel pretty good about myself. <laughs> so so everything is. After Kamara, that's exactly it. That's perfect. And if it's Alvin Kamara, that's great. Well, that's amazing. Congratulations on that because as we get into our 50s, it's a very, very important thing. And it's difficult because things hurt and all the injuries and so on and so forth. And uh, it, it catches up to you. And I, you know, I'm starting to get to the age where some of my friends are, are experiencing some health issues and things of that nature. So I, I wanted to make sure that wasn't me. And we all get a little lazy about it. Yeah, and uh, it's 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 something that uh, if you don't take care of the body, the rest will follow. I hear you. All right, let's return now to wokeness and Hollywood. So I tried to, as I was coming up with my list, John Voight. Yes, sir. Uh, uh, we've got James Woods. Yep. We've got the granddaddy Clint Eastwood. If you can hook up a brother here with a Clint if in, in Eastwood chat, <laughs> you know I tell you there are very very few. Uh, you know, actors, athletes that I'm interested in speaking to. Not, not, not because I'm being haughty, but because they don't strike me as interesting and so on. Clint Eastwood strikes me as a delicious guy to talk to. Do you know him? Would that I be don't tr- know. I wish I did, but he reminds me a lot of my father. I, I knew you were going to say that. You mean Trem- so? You mean your stepfather? Simple. My, he's my stepfather. By, technically, but he's my father. Okay, I got you. Why? Because of his no nonsense. What 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 are the similarities? My father was a was a cowboy, a farm kid from South Dakota. He grew up on a farm. He grew up, you know, milking cows and feeding feeding chickens and and cows and horses and things. And he was rodeo rider, you know, rode bulls and things of that nature. And and he's a, he became a film director. He's a no nonsense guy and. He has that sort of toughness, that cowboy thing that Clint Eastwood has. There's times he looks and says something, and I feel like I'm looking at my father. Uh, it's 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 crazy. So um, he reminds me of Clint, and his and his demeanor, and the way he approaches things, and his simplicity of advice. Sometimes, sometimes he says something, and I'm like, what, what does that even mean? Yeah. You know, the roots of the tree have to be strong. But what? And then I think about it, and I get it after. Oh, okay. Uh, so he he's very he reminds me of him in that in that very sort of down home simplistic bit of advice that that is so much more complicated than it seems right. and so much more savvy and nuanced than you would believe for, coming from you know the guy who might be whittling a you know with his with his knife whittling you know a little a little pointed stick. You know, and my dad would sit there and do that and then come up with some humdinger that I didn't even expect and just be like, what is, what is that? And I, that reminds me of what I think Clint Eastwood is like. I, even having auditioned for Clint Eastwood, he doesn't he doesn't have you come in and audition. This is way pre-COVID. He'll have you do it on tape. If he likes it, you're in. You got one or two takes on the day. Better be ready. Wow. Well, I mean, I what, I, what, I, what I love, I mean, so I, I first uh, discovered Clint 
when I was a very, very young child. So we're talking, uh, I don't know, five, six, seven in Lebanon with the spaghetti westerns, the Sergio Leone spaghetti westerns, you know, once upon a time, you know, all that, whatever, all that stuff. And uh, that's when I first kind of said, who's, I want to be that guy. Right, the guy, yeah, right. I mean, that's that's yes. the male archetype. I want to be that guy, right? And then, of course, later in the seventies, you got uh, what? What is the make my dirty, dirty Harry, Dirty Harry, and all that? But then his ability, and I'm gonna come back to the woke stuff in a second. But then his ability to transition to being not just a you know unbelievable actor, but an unbelievable director that shows the depth, right? I mean, a lot of you know handsome guys that are tall and leading men can can pull that off but it doesn't mean they can be directors the fact that you could do everything suggests that there's a lot of brain power there there is Clint Eastwood has a lot of that and if I could have you know an iota of the career that he's had um I, I will be very happy which uh, of your great stuff which of your hats so you you know you're a producer you're an actor you you do pre- presenting stuff on tv uh, of all these what's the one that you love the most? Being a dad. <laughs> really, yeah. honest to goodness. Yeah. I'm a single father. Being a dad has been the greatest thing. You know, I, I enjoy making movies and I enjoy being a director and a writer and an actor. I, I enjoy them all. But being a dad has been the greatest thing ever in my lifetime. And you make a lot of mistakes doing so, but it's it's the it's the greatest thing that I've ever had. If I could wear that hat and only that hat, I'd be just fine. You have a son. But and, Yes, I have a twenty, almost twenty-one-year-old son. He'll be twenty-one on June eleventh, so he'll uh, he'll turn twenty-one working on my film set. Okay, so he's not going to school with the blue-haired people. Yes. Oh, yes. Okay. No, he's blue-haired people. He's uh, he's in school in North Carolina at uh, uh, at a, a lovely university called High Point University, and uh, and he is uh, of someone who I think was actually the president of the university. I think was also born in Lebanon. Oh, uh, in that church, right, right in that little niche, that little area, really close. Uh, his name is uh, Nito uh, Cubain, and he's a wonderful, wonderful man and a, an inspiration. I think you guys would enjoy speaking to one another as well. Um, he is uh, he is a very interesting guy. But my son goes to school there. He's just back here for the summertime, and they they've been in school. You know, they've missed very little time whatsoever. They've been in person school the whole time. Oh wow, private university, and so he's just back for the summertime, and he needs to go to work. And dad's working, so you're going to work for me, Pitt. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> so you're, you're 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 currently in in Southern California. Yes, sir. In in uh, I don't know if you're you want to say or is it like in the LA region? No, I live in I live in Malibu. Uh, I was raised in Malibu. I've lived my you know my life here. Well, when, once I could afford to move back here, because once once I went to college and came out, I had to I had to live in all different places within Los Angeles after being in Buffalo. Um, but then uh, I was able to finally find my way back to Malibu, and it's a uh, it's a wonderful place to live. It's not Los Angeles. Yeah, I got you. Stretch the imagination. It's a it's a small little village. There's thirteen thousand residents in Malibu, and it's a small place. But you can get to Hollywood and all that ridiculousness when you have to. I I know it. I know Malibu well. I I lived in Southern California, by the way, for a few years huh. because I was a professor at UC Irvine, and I've had family sure. in Southern California since uh 84 i think so really southern california is is literally like a second home to me i've always wanted it to be my primary home 
And I think if you were to ask me what are my biggest regrets so far, well, one I can't do anything about at this point is the soccer one. But the one that I can still do something about and I hold out hope that it can happen is I still haven't found a way to permanently relocate to Southern California. And and my desire to be in Southern California is really at the most fundamental visceral level. I love the luminosity of the sun. I love the way the air smells. Now, we lived, so we're Newport Beach people, if I can put it this way, both in terms of where we lived, where my brother was, and so on. So I've always been in it. So I really understand your I, when you said a small village because people say, but what do you like Southern California? It's horrible. I say, I've got nothing to do with LA. I'm one hour south. I'm in this little village. I live in this fantasy world. I never see highways. Uh, so I, I, I understand your love for Southern California, and I, I wish I could join you there, hopefully one day. Hopefully. there's not, it's, it's impossible to beat the, uh, the weather. It's just you can't. It's just, I've never been someplace other than maybe Sydney, Australia, the yeah. northern beach of Sydney, where it felt like this. Yeah, yeah. And to some extent, Lebanon is similar, and I hear that Cape Town, South Africa, has also some similarities with Southern California. But yeah, you're right. It's, it's the best place. Now, usually every summer, we... My, by we, I mean my family, my wife and kids. We spend much of our summer in Southern California. Although, of course, in an ideal world, we'd be spending our winters in Southern California. But I'm I'm tied to my teaching schedule. So we do what's next best, which is to spend the summer in Southern California. But now it's been since COVID almost two years that we haven't been able to, to return. And so we're really keen uh, to return, hopefully, one day soon. All right, let's, let's go. We'll go out and have a drink. Oh, I look forward to it. That would be fantastic. Uh, so, by the way, I know another, I mean, I know several other actors and so on, but probably the one that I know the best, who is the closest friend of the acting world, is, do you, do you know someone named Mark Pellegrino? I know the name. I don't know that I know him personally. He is the guy who plays, uh, as I understand it, uh, he played maybe Lucifer or something like that. Is that. Was there a show called Lucifer? Or there was a show called Lucifer. I don't remember. I never saw it. I know that Tom Welling, who also played Clark Kent on Smallville, I worked with. I know he apparently he was on that show, but I never saw Lucifer. Okay, okay. yeah, because he's, he's been on my show at first. Uh, how we met is he came on my show because he's a very staunch libertarian so in addition to uh, being an actor he's very much you know politically engaged not not unlike how i got to really know you through all of your appearances on fox and so on uh, i'm surprised you haven't been invited by your good friend rachel maddow yet to go on her show what happened there i wish she would i'd show up <laughs> i'd show up in a heartbeat I've, I've done things on cnn and other places. i'll go anytime they just don't ask me to come on yeah no I, and I would be there in a second they i'm sure you would do the same exactly right I, I no question. they don't ask me to i would be happy to. Yeah, it's unbelievable. You know, there's a couple of uh, sort of, uh, you know, woke uh, journalists that, that follow me and I've reached out to them and said, hey, why don't you come on my show? Because my point is not to only speak to people who are already sold on the, the ideas that I discuss. I actually want to appear on all those other platforms, some of which might be hostile and so on, because the point is to try to change people's hearts and minds, right? Uh, they never even replied to me, which, you know, again, it, it, it speaks to that obnoxiousness. You and I connected. There's no pretense. We connect. We chat. Boom, boom, boom. And then we make it happen, right? Yes. And it's unfortunate. There's that, that's what we're lacking, I think. And, and I think people want that to happen these days. Keep people separate. Keep them in their echo chambers. Push this point of view. I mean, I, I don't have to tell you what the media has done. We're seeing little bits and sprinkles of it come out now. And, oh, yeah, sure, you know. COVID could have escaped from the Wuhan lab and maybe, maybe 
everything this person says isn't a lie. And these things that they're saying, it's like if they actually hear what they're saying, yeah. it's insane. Yeah. It's, it's crazy that these are journalists saying maybe everything Tom Cotton says isn't a lie. I mean, what, what are you talking did, did about? You, did you see the changes that they did to the headlines with uh, Tom Cotton? It was just, it came out today. Somebody put out a tweet. Wasn't it unbelievable? It's, it's, it's disgusting to me. Yeah, it's disgusting and it's so, it's so blatant and it's right in your face, but it just escapes. It kind of somehow just oozes away and, and, then, and then nobody is held responsible for it. Yeah. I, I don't understand that. So let's go back to, so I mentioned four guys, James Woods, John Voigt, yourself, Clint Eastwood. Maybe I'm missing some other names. You'll, you'll, you'll correct me in a second. What I see across all these folks is they're honey badgers. In what way? They are existing in an environment where, the, where it could be very, very punitive to even come close to remotely saying anything like you guys say. Now, I'm even in a more honey badger situation, if I can say, because I'm in academia. I, you know, I, I'm, in the, I'm in the Wuhan uh, virology lab of crappy ideas. It's called <laughs> academia, right? You know, you're just the downstream effect. We create the BS, okay, in academia. And yet, look how outspoken I am. So, so what is it? So that has to be. So if I look at each of you, and you now you have a much more diplomatic, uh, you know, less acerbic, friendly, warm, handsome way about you. Uh, James Woods, I, I see him on Twitter. He's fantastic. I mean, he literally makes me boom, right? Uh, you know, you got Ricky Gervais. Okay, he's not uh, he's not American, but you know he's you know he's he's within that group. Sure. So, it, can we bottle any of this, or it's you're either innate, you're born with that ability to sort of stand and say, "I'm not going to have any of it," or can we teach people to be that, or you either have it or you don't? I think we can teach people to some degree, but I think that you, I think it's both obviously it's kind of a wishy-washy answer, but I think it's both. I think there are people who would be inspired and will be inspired by those who do this by a James Woods, by a Clint Eastwood, uh, and, and say, okay, if he does it and he can say those things then I, I'm maybe I can too, even though this is what I believe, I'll just shut my mouth and go along so that I can go along to get along and to go to move forward in my career. One thing that we all sort of have in common is that we all had established a certain amount of credibility as an actor and a bit of a career before these things started flying out of our mouths. And I think that's important because if I were a young actor, there's so many people who are advising you when you first become a young actor and find some success. They're, okay, you have to find a charity to support and this is a publicist or doing this and you have to do this. What is your thing? And I'm like, my thing is I'm 26 and I want to pay my rent. I mean, I don't know. I don't have a thing. You know, and they want you to develop a thing that you support and this and that. As you get older and you go through life, those things happen naturally. There's so many things that I support. My, my, my deciding to become a, become a law officer, you know, that law enforcement officer, that's something that I'm 100% behind. My son was in school. Education became a much more important issue to me. And they, these things happen as life goes on. But they, they, they tell you you have to come here and do this, say this, don't say that. Um, there was things that... I was working on one show, I'll just leave the show out, but they were talking about um, doing this um, public service announcement. They, every member of the cast, they wanted to do this, talking about gun control. Well, I, I, I sit on the board of directors for the NRA. <laughs> There's no way you're going to get me to say anything that, 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 about, that, I, that I supported what they were saying. You know, do I think that crazy people and felons should have guns? No. But do I think that you have a right in the Second Amendment, the United States Constitution, to keep and bear arms? Yes, I do. Do they all have to be just little pistols? No. 
I believe in the right to, you know, have a, an AR-15, which is the most popular hunting rifle in the world. And do I have these things? Of course I do. And do I know how to use them? Yes. Does my son? Yes. Do all the members of my family? Yes, we do. Do we walk around and brandish them and talk? No, that's not what it's about. Right. So I believe in that. So I wouldn't go along with that. And of course, there was a lot of ruffled feathers and things of that nature. But as a young kid, I probably would have gone along with it uh, because I didn't know better. And I didn't realize what, that I was being sort of manipulated to do so. And it would have cost me a lot of work. I'm sure it's cost me all sorts of work. Nobody Even now, me. right? Even oh, now. Yes, of course. People are like, oh, him? I don't, want, I don't want to deal with him. No. He's a, you know, he's a right winger or this or that. When I'm completely not. When it comes to social issues, I am yeah. as far left as you can be. I mean, I don't care about what anybody does. I'm very libertarian in a lot of my views as well. I don't care what you do at home or who you want to love or how you want to love. I believe in treating everybody with respect and dignity and and but treat me poorly. I'm gonna if I come back at you a little more sharp than than than, than you want. You know, I'm not just because someone is a certain way. If they treat me that way, they're gonna get treated that way in in, in return in, in a sense. I'm not a counterpuncher like Donald Trump, but but I'm a grown man. I don't I don't like that. I treat people with respect. If they don't treat me the same, then I go okay. You're over here. Yeah, I'll put you in this little box over on that side. And if you're wonderful and great, I don't care what color you are, or how tall you are, or what your ethnicity is, or I, you're, this is a good person. That's what I care about. In my Twitter bio, on the top of it, I have that Martin Luther King Jr. quote about him having a dream that one day his little children will live in a world where they're judged by the content of the character, not the color of their skin. Well, I mean, I didn't quote it correctly, but but boy, I can't tell you how many people on Twitter have told me that I have to take it down because I'm a white supremacist racist. Now, I, of course, am, my given name is Tanaka. I'm Japanese. I'm a quarter Japanese. I'm certainly not a white supremacist by any stretch of the imagination. I played in the NFL. Most of my friends, 80% of them, 70% of them are black. So there's no, there's no racism in me. No, but you suffer from multiracial whiteness. <laughs> Come on, man. Just just because you may not be white doesn't mean you're not a white supremacist. Uh, Herschel Walker, the football player, is a white supremacist. I know him and I love Herschel. He's, he's great. He's, is he a racist too? Is he a multi-racist? What is he, he is multi-racial. He suffers from multi-racial whiteness. <laughs> that's, Have that's you seen his son, Christian? I haven't, no. His son, Christian Walker. You might want to check him out on Twitter. You'd be shocked, A, that that's Herschel Walker's son. B, that he has the gumption to say the things he says. That young man uh, is a character. I would love to hear your your professorial oh, Christian? doctor, Christian Walker. So he's on, he's on the anti-woke, not the blue-haired people, right? No, he is certainly anti-woke. Ah, okay, he's I'll check him out. People. He is, he speaks his mind, but you, uh, I would love to hear your take as a professor of, of human behavior to just t tell me where this, this oh i'm excited from. i'm gonna go check i'm always excited when i see a new person who's joining the team reason so i'll, I'll definitely check him out and let and you know what i think virtual walker's son is going to be I, there's some things that you can explain that i can't quite put together so I would oh love very to cool very cool and i'm sure he would love to come on the show oh that, that's wonderful so I know that you recently mentioned, and I was thank you. That was a very nice shout out regarding uh, our mutual friend and boyfriend uh, Seth Rogen. Uh, and so, and, and please, if if when I come and visit you in Malibu, 
it'll be my biggest honor for me to meet the brilliant Seth Rogen. Uh, <laughs> so that would be wonderful. It'll be a dream come true for me. Uh, but in any case, <laughs> in any case, I, I appreciate that I don't have to explain to you that I'm being sarcastic. So thank you for that. Because uh, sometimes I, I notice that the person doesn't get my thing and I say, no, I'm, I'm just kidding. Uh, so, so, so thank you for that. Uh, so do you ever interact with the, you know, the, the, the woke people in Hollywood and have a serious conversation with them where you then see that they've actually listened to you and, and you got them to move a bit? Or are they impenetrable to reason because they've been inculcated with all the BS of Hollywood? I find more often than not, depending on where they sit, I mean, first of all, I'll say this, that I get so many people quietly coming up to me and saying, oh my God, just want to hug me. Listen, thank you. I mean, it's all over the place. Whether it's in my industry, um, we're on set doing something, someone just comes up and goes, hey man, I just want to say thank you. I just want to say thank you for all that you say and do and you have the nuts to say it and, and thank you for doing that because it's what I want to say and I can't because they're in a different position or something like that. They're just like, so just thank you. Um, I have people who either come up to me and go, hey man, I got, I got, my, I got a firearm, I, what, I need some safety classes, what do I go for this, where can I tell them these things and so on and so forth. I get people, I mean, I, I fly a lot, so I can't tell you how often I get uh, a little note from the, somebody who's, uh, who's one of the flight attendants coming by and just say thank you for the thing. And like, you know, you're, you know, I get more people talking about the politics stuff like that than the overt Superman stuff. So I get I get it all the time. So it's very fulfilling to hear that and very reassuring to go, okay, there are people who are listening and it's not the Hollywood woke crowd. I will happily have those conversations with anybody in the Hollywood woke crowd. What I find is whenever I do sort of want to engage, I hear it because I'll hear it in the makeup room. Things are going and everyone's like, oh, well, look out because Dean will say something. And I'll just go, well, I just don't, I don't agree with that. And here's why I don't. But I'd love to hear your opinion on it. And, Okay, we'll have a conversation. When I have someone who's reasonable and I have those conversations, generally I can see some movement. And I listen, if your argument's better than mine, I'll move. Yeah, of course. I'm happy to, but I'm happy to have the conversation. I want to have the conversation. Then there's those who, the moment you start on that, they can't, they can't have the conversation. Yeah. They get too emotional, they get upset, and it's ruined the day. Now you can't film and things are going haywire, so you gotta not do that because it'll make someone so upset that they can't film and can't do things because they get completely irrational. I've seen that with some great actors, people that I like, when they were having some sort of political conversation, they just lost their means. You mean with you? Yeah, well they wouldn't, they couldn't go, they couldn't beat my argument, but it was like, they just get like this, you don't understand it, and they just melt down, and I'm just like, and I'm completely calm, What, what, what don't you, what am I not clear about, or what? Make your point. I'd love to hear your point that's, yeah. that refutes what I'm saying. It's just you're wrong. It's just, it, it shouldn't be that way. And or you didn't grow up this way. Or, no, I didn't. But but you didn't grow up the way I grew up either. So it doesn't change the fact yeah. that this could work this way. Or, you know, my support of Israel, I get that sometimes too. I you mean the Nazi that. apartheid state that's cre- committing <laughs> a daily genocide of Palestinians whose population has grown fivefold in the worst documented genocide in the history of the world? That That country? Yeah, that one. Yeah, that, the genocide. The definition, I've, I've made a documentary on genocide. I made a documentary on the genocide, the Armenian genocide. It's uh, called, by the way, do Ar- you know that I'm married to a Lebanese-Armenian woman? No, you didn't know that. I did not know that. No, sir. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, then, yeah. The, you know how important the Armenian genocide is to an Armenian. Of course. And, and it's incredibly well documented. So I did a project. It was called, um, it's called uh, Architects of Denial. 
and it deals with the denial of that genocide and the 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 buried just burying the story basically by Turkey for this entire time. And I'm not it's not the Turkish people. It's certainly the Turkish government. They don't want to deal with what the atrocities that took place and the the 1.5 million Armenians about that were were killed and moved and marched, you know, all the way from Armenia to Syria and Lebanon and beyond yeah. and all over the area. And so we made that project. That's a that I understand what a genocide is. I don't think the Palestinians are experiencing a genocide, <laughs> to put it mildly. And I spent time in Israel and in Jordan and loved the t I love being over there. I, I so desperately want to be able to spend time in Lebanon, um, but I just haven't been able to. My first girlfriend was Lebanese. She was she was she, she broke my heart. Thank you. Oh, I blame you. Oh, oh I'm oh, sorry. I, on behalf of all Lebanese people, I'm sorry. But I can tell you this, and I'm saying this not because I'm Lebanese. Lebanese women are truly the most beautiful women in the world. I will not argue with you. Bingo. Uh, so, but I'm going to keep you away from my wife because uh, you're just too goddamn good looking. So I don't like that. Good looking and tall. I'm not having... I'm just coming to have dinner with you alone. You're not getting close to my wife. I'm sorry. Football player, tall, Superman. It's not going to happen. Uh, <laughs> you've, you've got me beat with the intellectual... Uh, maybe by a bit. Uh, <laughs> I'm not getting into that one. Uh, so okay. So let I want to I want to ask you. Uh, so this is actually an article that I'd written. I think maybe 2010, maybe 2009. I I don't write often for this uh, column anymore. I, I had a very popular Psychology Today column, and in arguably one of my most popular articles was. Uh, uh, an article titled The Narcissism and Grandiosity of Celebrities. And what I was doing there is I was offering a psychological analysis of some of the reasons why celebrities are so narcissistic and grandiose. Uh, I mean, there's a, several of them. I'll just focus on one. And I wanted to sort of get your perspective as a, an insider in Hollywood, whether, what you think of the theory. Uh, so... You know, when a plane crashes, there's something called survival survival guilt, right? If you know sure. the guy right next to you died and you didn't, and you're just sort of haunted by this existential thing. Well, why did I survive? And this poor guy who had two kids next to him died. And so I, I soldiers soldiers go through this. I know that as well. Exactly, I've seen that up close and personal. Exactly right. And so I I argued using that sort of existential guilt sense that. Actors, in many instances, realize that in the deep in the deep recesses of their minds that they are not worthy of all the adulation that they have. I mean, they're 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 in that sense they're existentially fraudulent, right? I mean, sure. I'm really not deserving of you know a million people lining up screaming because they their brain has somehow tricked them into thinking that I'm truly a superhero when I simply play a superhero, right? But our, our evolved mind, I, I, don't, I don't see Dean Kane. I see Superman, right, who saved the world. And I just want to touch him. He's a superhero. He's royalty, right? And so they know in the deep recesses of their mind when they put their heads on their pillows to sleep at night that they're, in that sense, fraudulent. So the, the only way that they can correct that existentially is if they then show the world that they are actually people of much greater depth. They're saving the world. They're saving this. They're doing that. Right? Uh, Madonna is going to detoxify the uh, lakes from uh, uh, uranium. I, I don't remember what it was, using Kabbalah juice. Uh, 
uh, Gwyneth Paltrow is going to, I, I don't know what, through her vagina power is going to reverse engineer <laughs> aging, all kinds of stuff. You know, I'm, I'm a person of substance. I'm not just a, you know, a dumb, pretty or handsome actor. And so because of that, they, they and, and because they're constantly, they're never told no, they're, they're only surrounded by yes people. So they don't get negative feedback. There's no loop that says, hey, Dean. Cut it. You're acting like an asshole, right? And so, right, but Mr. Mr. Kane, Mr. Kane, how can I... Oh, you don't like the color blue? We will eradicate from Earth the color blue because Mr. Kane is coming to the hotel. That's what Jennifer Lopez does apparently with the color white, if I'm not mistaken. There, there can't be any manifestation of the color white when she comes in or whatever the color is. So because of these sort of mutual forces, I'm no longer well calibrated to have epistemic humility, to know what I know and know what I don't know. Scientists have that, right? When I know something, I speak with all the swagger of someone who knows. But there's a million things I know nothing about. So that if you ask me about it, I'll say, you know what, Dean, I, I know nothing about this. So I'm going to keep my mouth shut. Actors don't have that because they're superheroes. What do you think? Is that is that your sense of the dynamics of what's happening? My short answer would be absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, no question about it. I think you alluded to it. And your series of tweets where you castrated uh, Seth Rogen. Um, <laughs> I, I saw some of that and it's 100% correct. And I know so many of these right. folks. And I know what frauds they are in that sense. And so I, I for me, it's just it, it, 100%. You are 100% on. And you are right in that they, they are, they're surrounded by yes people. There's no one there to say no. I have family that are that are rooted in saying no to me yeah. very easily. And as a football player, uh, all my teammates, no problem saying no to me. And, and uh, you know, I, I, when, I, when I go to gym, I go to a gym, I box. They don't care what I have to say. You know, they don't care at all. And I, they, they're gonna hit me and whether I, they think I'm this or that, they, they're gonna work me and it doesn't matter. So there are so, I, I like being in those situations. As a police officer, I'm, I'm a police officer. I'm not out there. I mean, people are going to call me names, do things, you know, spit in my coffee or whatever happens. That's those kind of things. I'm okay with that. I like being in that position because that's based in reality. But so often, and, and it's really, and you were right, but I, I think it's even worse than you even you even um, allude to. The, the things that people in these in this industry can get away with and have been getting away with for so long because of their ability, their talent on the screen or whatever, uh, is insane. And they are complete frauds. It's like I said, when I, when I first became an actor, they were telling me I had to pick some causes. You have to get behind a cer certain causes because that'll be your thing and whatever. I was like, I don't have a thing. Amazing. Yeah, I'm, I'm a kid. I don't have a thing. Let me develop a thing and then it'll be legitimate. That's your authenticity speaking, even at 26 years old. You know, uh, so I've been on uh, Joe Rogan's show, you know, many, many oh, times. And love Joe. Yeah, he's fantastic. Uh, I think it might have been the first time I ever was on or one of the first times where he said something that I've often repeated because I thought it was so brilliant. We were talking about all this, you know, the actor and actors and phoniness. And he said something that I loved. And I think it also speaks to the realness when you put on the, the blue suit because there's no faking it there. You, you, do a, you, do a, you do a traffic stop. There's no faking, right? So he said, you know, what he goes, when... I don't like the acting stuff. He, he sort of was very much like you. He hated all that phony stuff. He's a very real guy. And he said, when I stand up as a stand-up comic, it's all there. There is no faking it. You're either funny or you're not. The audience will tell you. When you enter the MMA ring, 
There's no faking it. There's, there's no, there's no, there's no inauthenticity there. And then he he pointed to me and he said something really lovely that I I really took as a as a, as a beautiful compliment. He said, when you stand up the way that you do and share your ideas, if you're saying BS, you're going to get skewered. There is a realness in the positions that you take, and and you better be able to stand and defend those positions. And the fact that he was able to make that sort of authenticity link between all these, and and I'm gonna add now you being a police officer to that authenticity realm, that's the beauty of what we do, right? There, there is no fakeness. There is, now, oftentimes, people wrongly think that when I'm being, you know, uh, combative on Twitter, you know, I, I should modulate better because a professor should be, you know, smoking a pipe and sipping a martini and pontificating in the air. Manage your image better. And I'm like, no, F you. I am what I am for better or for worse. And I think most people truly appreciate that. Bottom line. I think most people who are real and honest about it do. And there are those who want to believe, you know, want you to project this other image. It's funny someone says to you to modulate that, change that a little bit. When that's exactly who you are. They say it to us as actors all the time. I mean, they were. The, I couldn't believe the number of people who were trying to coach me to go on talk shows and things. Actors are terrible on talk shows most of the time because actors don't like who they are, and that's why they're so comfortable being something else, another character. Yeah, don't have to get in there and be themselves. There are a few who are, but not that many. And so I, I, I see it all the time. And they're, they're terrible on talk shows, and I won't name names, but there's some very famous ones that you just go, "Whoa, I like this person in a film, but boy, I don't like them on a talk show at all." It just doesn't make any sense. And so, and you're right there. It's because they're very fraudulent in what they're doing and what they're representing. And that's why they can go and be somebody else. All does, the time. does one of them have a name that rhymes with Bobbert the Biro? <laughs> I would think that is the case. Uh, very much. I've heard some stories. And, you know, the worst thing you could say to, to me about someone is that they're a bad parent. Oh, yes. And, and uh, I've heard things, and um, I don't know personally. Listen, I, I that that's an actor who I would be happy to work with as an actor because it's probably very talented as an actor. Oh, yeah. uh, and I would not watch a movie because so and so is in it. Um, but uh, I don't think that works both ways for a lot of folks. I can watch a movie with someone who I know. Whether it's just, I think Seth Rogen's a funny actor. Yeah. And he I is. and I enjoy and what he does, and I think it's fun to watch him. Um, I really wish he would take the uh, take the opportunity to have a conversation with you and get into it because, you know, I think he would really reveal more about himself than, than he than he believes. You know, and and I, I I hope that you you know this of me, even though we've just met, even though I was you know very frontal and direct with him in our exchange, although I don't think I was impolite. If he came on my show. I would be completely gracious. I would not in the least bit because maybe it's my Middle Eastern background, you know, the hospitality thing. Maybe it's just my my personhood that once you are a guest on my show, because oftentimes people say, oh, you you seem so much warmer and kinder when you have guests on. But when you take on somebody on Twitter, well, that's just because of the situation, right? If, if, you, if you mug me in an alley, I will act differently than if I'm tucking <laughs> my children to bed. I haven't suddenly changed dispositions. It's the situation that demanded that in one case I responded violently and in the other I didn't. So it's not because I am a bad guy that I did what I did on Twitter. But if you've insulted me 74 times and then I come back with you to you with so I would love for him to come on the show because I think he does have a huge audience 
he can change people's minds by by me being able to reach out to him a bit he might be then able to modulate his thinking but apparently he's not interested so he's not interested because he doesn't want to be challenged exactly and that's unfortunate because I want to be challenged. I'm happy. Like I said, I'd be happy to go on CNN and discuss things anytime. And I, I, if you and I disagreed, I would have no problem. It wouldn't make me not like you as yeah. a human being. Uh, I would say I disagree on this because of that or whatever. And then I happen to agree with you because you're brilliant. But that, <laughs> but, uh, but, but if I disagreed on something, I'd say I don't agree with that 100% because X, Y, or Z. And we could have a, an intelligent disagreement. They're necessary and they're supposed to be what you're – this is the thing that bothers me about education so much is that's where you're supposed to be challenged intellectually and you're supposed to be challenged. And to be in – live in this echo chamber that so many do where, where if you challenge someone's ideas and, and hear something that sounds uncomfortable to you, you're not – it's not OK. You won't be able you're, – you're, you're canceled from the university or fired or whatever. It's like – you know Ben Shapiro coming to speak, and people, no, we don't want him to speak here. What? What is? That's literally the antithesis that's of what you're supposed to be doing in college. Unbelievable. All right, two more questions because I can keep you here for another six hours. You're such a delight. <laughs> uh, number one, when are we going to get the announcement that Superman Dean Kane is running for political office? When is that happening? Well, I'll tell you what. It's been really interesting here because, and, and this is and this is a very deadly serious thing. Is, I, I don't want to be a politician. I, I really don't. It's terrible. It's, what a horrible job. But that's how it was set up here in the United States. It was set up to be a horrible job that you didn't want to do. You'd come and do it part-time and you'd get out. Yeah, yeah, of course. I'd be willing to serve in political office only because I believe I would represent my constituents well and I would certainly live by and abide by my morals, my standards, and the things that I espouse. A hundred percent. So it's crossed your mind, like you've thought about it. Oh, I, not only have I thought about it, it's been brought to my attention, and I've been asked to run for Senate. I've been asked to run for governor. I've been asked to run uh, for Congress. Uh, a whole bunch. And there's currently we're in a situation where we have our current governor here in California, Gavin Newsom, who is being recalled. Yes. And that's going to go on the ballot. And the deadline. I mean, I already know the deadline for having to declare candidacy for the governor for the gubernatorial race would be July 14th. Um, I have people talking to me every day going, listen, um, it's kind of turning into a circus. We need you to end this. Get in here and run. I say, I don't want to run when they go. That's exactly why you should run. And, And I don't want the power or the prestige. So many politicians and I meet many, many, many of them. They do it for that. They really think they're almost like an actor, like they're something special. Yeah. Then I meet some that that don't feel that way, like like uh, Representative Brad Wenstrup from from Cincinnati, from Ohio. He was an Army medic. He's the guy who saved Steve Scalise on the on the field. Oh, he was right. Applying. He, he is the most humble guy. Spent time talking with my son. Gave him a little interview. We were in Poland, going to visit. Um, Auschwitz and Birkenau and different places and going through this uh, and he was the most humble wonderful guy uh, he doesn't strike me as as somebody who's in it for anything but he's so humble you know he'll he'll speak his mind and he'll, he'll represent his constituents but he's not there for the prestige and look the look at me I'm the governor thing and that's what I want um, so would I would, would I be willing to serve yes do I want to do it no could I be effective that's the big question because California has a super majority of, of Democrats and my ideas would sound, you know, horrendous border security, you know, um, cleaning up the homeless situation, jobs, 
we have we have the highest rate of poverty in the nation in California. We are we're the fifth largest economy in the world, but we're completely business unfriendly. I mean, there's so many things. The taxes are out of control. I feel my, it's five bucks a gallon gallon for ta- for my for my gas right now. The gas tax is crazy here. Um, the the cost of everything is crazy here. It's creating this giant rift between the very wealthy and uh, you know the middle the, and the lower class because there's very little middle class left. It's so difficult to do that. The things they're doing and the the even the the unemployment um, the 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 unemployment benefits that have been going out during COVID. They're saying that California's shares of 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 fraudulent. EDD claims are in the $42 billion plus range. Unbelievable. That's just the numbers are astronomical. And these are our tax dollars. And that makes me ill. Uh, we pay, I pay, the, you know, a huge state income tax here. It's ridiculous. They're talking about like taxing even more for people who, who if, if you have a certain amount of wealth, even if you leave here the next 10 years, you can be taxed. I mean, it's just stuff that's insane to me. And people are just kind of letting it go. Well, and, that's and why I Joe Rogan left, right? That's why Joe Rogan left. That's why so many anybody who has any any worth, any wealth, would get out because the, the, your freedoms are being erased and, and brought down and down and down. I, I am just against that. So I would have a big fight on my hands. We even our you know our forest management is, is is horrific. The amount of water that comes down in rain, the rainwater that comes down in California, we're a desert, right? We're Southern California is a desert. The rainwater that comes down here, ninety three percent of it runs right back into the ocean. It's not reservoir. It's not cared for. Wow. The whole joke with the Delta smelt up in the San Joaquin Valley, stuff like that just doesn't make sense to me. And I would do everything in my power to change that. Would I, would I work as governor? I don't know. Would I do it? I would certainly consider it if I felt I could, if I could win and be effective. Well, it, for whatever my very minimal opinion, Matt, to, to whatever, however extent it matters, I think that you should try to go for it because, hey, maybe you're the next Ronald Reagan. And then I could selfishly say... I had a president of the United States on my show. I don't care whether you run or not. It's so that I can brag about it. That's all that matters. Yeah, you understand? Uh, okay. Next, uh, last question. Uh, you mentioned earlier, uh, uh, you know, the the movie that you're starting to shoot next, and so that was, you know, that was an opportunity to promote that. Are there any other projects or you know things that you'd like to promote as we wrap this up, Dean? I think people don't realize that that, that I've made uh, documentaries in the, in the recent past, and one of them was the Armenian Genocide documentary, Architects of Denial, as thinkers, and I think there's a lot of thinkers that watch you. Um, I would love for them to take a look at that. As a history major from college, it's something that I think is an important work. You know, it's uh, it's more important than the, that episode of CSI that I did. Um, so I would love for people to look at that. And I have another one that came out last year. We won an Emmy for it. Nice. Um, it's called Eight Among Us. It deals with the rise of anti-Semitism uh, here in the United States, uh, Canada, and Europe, and some of the reasons for that. It, the reason we made the hate among us was it sort of sparked. It was a natural progression to come from the Armenian genocide, which, which in many ways, sort of led to the Holocaust. And, and Hitler was talking about his his final solution. He said, and uh, I don't know the exact quote, but he said, you know, after all, who remembers the Armenians? Because that that was a perfect textbook way to go to commit a genocide and just put and wipe it under the rug and deny and deny and deny and, and Turkey the government of Turkey has done that to this day and it's it's awful and I know your wife is Armenian Lebanese she would love nothing more than to have that um, recognized 
the genocide recognized. We fortunately, um, Joe Biden is the one thing that I can say. I was going to say the same thing. We have to be fair. He's the one who, did, yeah, exactly. He's the only one. I thought I was going to get President Trump to do it. I lobbied Congress and the Senate both and had a lot of conversations with a lot of politi politicians and uh, pushing for it. I was happy it got done. There were there are political reasons. The only reason it wasn't done before is political reasons. Uh, Joe Biden did that, and I'm very happy he did. And that was the that's the one thing that I that I will give him credit for so far. Um, but I want people if people do go and watch this, I would really be these 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 two documentaries. I would be very happy because they they mean a lot to me. Wonderful. You are a cold lemonade on a hot summer day. To speak to you is having a cold lemonade. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Stay on the on the line for a second so we could say goodbye offline. Such a pleasure meeting you, Dean, and I will definitely take you up on uh, your lovely invitation to visit with you in Malibu so that we can go and hang out with Seth Rogen in a few months. <laughs> Cheers, buddy.